Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, I'm excited that we're uh, starting a new series, and it's kind of revolving around C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis's uh, thoughts and and, uh, teachings and explanations of the Christian life. Now, this is quite a diversion for us because we're, we're, we take very seriously the Scriptures and we pretty much stick to the text and we uh, faithfully move through the Scriptures. And so for uh, the next six weeks, we're going to look at thoughts that Lewis has brought to us through his writings and his books mainly because I think that it is a good practice for us as believers to look very closely at the text, to understand the Scriptures as they're given to us, but at other times to step away and see the grand picture and how it fits in and how it should shape our lives and how we should think. And this Looking close and standing back and looking close and standing back should be something that is constantly going on for us. And Lewis will help us a great deal. It's kind of the difference between uh, studying the scriptures and, and knowing the words and the structures of sentences and looking at the words of scripture and then stepping back and kind of looking at systematic theology. How does the story of God and the revelation of God unfold in a grand way? And, th- and that interplay, that change, should constantly be happening. So why should we look at the words of C.S. Lewis or the thoughts of C.S. Lewis? And one of the reasons is because he, he pushes us to think in a big way about God and also in a particular way about how we have thought about God and what the words of Scripture say. Uh, This is borne out by an interview that was done in 1983 uh, by Discipleship Magazine speaking to Elizabeth Elliot. And I don't know if you know who Elizabeth Elliot is, but she uh, lost her husband on the missionary field. Uh, He was murdered when they arrived at the missionary field. And uh, once they returned, she felt called by God to return to that same tribe and to bring the gospel there. And she returned and became a missionary herself. Uh, She has gone through a lot of things in her life and and understands what it means to pursue God. And, And so the discipleship magazine said, asked her a question, how could a person deepen his or her understanding of God and become a clearer thinker? And she answered, study the Bible and study C.S. Lewis. People have always, are always saying C.S. Lewis was not a theologian, and Lewis himself would say that, but he was. She says he covered the whole field of the knowledge of God in a popular and understandable language. The fact that he could put it in simple language is proof to me that he understood it better than many theologians. So uh, Lewis is uh, profound in his ability to explain deep concepts of God. And, 
And sometimes I think, well, maybe I'm not a very good reader because sometimes he's challenging for me to follow. Uh, but I hope that as we think about C.S. Lewis, that we'll be drawn to the Scriptures and we'll learn some things that will benefit us as believers. It is true, J.I. Packer always says, what we learn about God and the thoughts that we have about God are the most important thoughts you'll ever have in your life. So it is worth giving your attention, your focus, your energy to understanding God in a fuller way, in a more mature way. And that's part of why we meet together regularly on Sundays. That's why we hold up the Scriptures. That's why we have classes, because we're trying to know God as best we can. And Lewis helps us do that in a great way. Now, Lewis was a thinker. He made rational arguments about profound truths. He came on the scene in uh, 40, 40, 42, during World War II, um, and was giving explanation of the Christian faith to uh, Britain uh, during the war. And it was when people were questioning God and questioning what was happening, how uh, World War II was starting, how it was impacting people's lives, and he stepped in and explained the gospel and God's work in the world and who he is and how his truth works. And uh, they became well attended, and he went on to do a series of uh, uh, lectures or talks on the radio. And those lectures, those talks, became a book, which is called Mere Christianity. And if you've never read Mere Christianity, I didn't invite you to do that. But in Mere Christianity, even, he gives rational arguments for the existence of God. And he would always say that his rational arguments are based off of the Old and the New Testaments. Because in the Old and New Testaments, we have the best, most explicit revelation of God. And that once we believe that revelation, once we trust in that revelation, we can give rational arguments and explanations. But if it comes down to following a rational argument or an explanation or following the Scriptures... You should drop the rational arguments and follow the scriptures. And so as we hear from Lewis, he would be telling us, as he says in Mere Christianity many times, if his explanations and ideas help you, use them. If they don't, drop them. So as we look at the scripture, and as we think some of the thoughts that Lewis had, I hope that we will be encouraged to understand the Christian faith in a deeper way. I hope it will also be an encouragement to you to read some of C.S. Lewis. But there are important truths that he communicates to us that I think we need to hear today. I need to hear today, and you need to hear today. So this morning we'll consider some thoughts about God from the Scriptures and from Lewis. First, I'd like to pick up this idea, and, and, and we're, uh, we're going to look at several topics, and we're going to jump around a lot of things that Lewis wrote, and so we're not capturing very much in these six messages. I'm trying to pull out some 
interesting things that hopefully will be instructive and encouraging to you, but also be maybe an encouragement to read some of Lewis. Not everything that Lewis said is right on or perfect. And like he would say, drop the things that we uh, don't find helpful. But as we start this series, I'm probably tackling, for me, one of the more difficult topics, and that is God himself how we think about God and what we think about God. And so I'm first asking the question or inviting you to consider with Lewis God as a spirit. And that's a big topic, God as a spirit. The scriptures give us a lot of revelation about God, gives us a lot of declarations about God. It, it also says that if we are left to ourselves to come up with what God is like in our understanding according to our own thoughts, we will ultimately fail because we are sinful and we are foolish in heart and we can't decipher the information about God as we should. This fundamentally is what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about creation revealing the truth, the, the invisible attributes about God, and yet we miss them, we contort them, we uh, distort them, and we miss the truth. And so our need for a revelation, God speaking, God breaking into the world and communicating who he is and what he is like is essential to us. And the scriptures have several affirmations about God. God speaks. God interacts first with Abraham and his descendants and the people of Israel. And God speaks to them through the prophets and through Moses and the succession of prophets. And in God speaking to them, they have written down those communications, those events. And sometimes there are clear declarations about what God is like in the Scriptures. And we believe the Scriptures are the revelation of God. Through the accounts of history, through the experiences of God's people with God himself, and through the words of God spoken through the prophets. One revelation of God that comes to his people is so important it stands out on its own in the Old Testament. And it comes at the time when God sends Moses to Egypt to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. It's when God's calling Moses to go and deliver his people, and you probably remember this phrase. From Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. God said, now Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you to me, has sent me to you. Sorry. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Coming to understand this great statement, 
It tells us of God's unending existence in the past, or his existence unending in the past. It tells us of his sufficient existence in the present, and it tells us of God's existence throughout what is to us a future. But God is I am. And understanding that is that he is, in a sense, outside of time. He is always present. The past is present to him. The present is present to him. The future is present to him. He is different than us. And Lewis was drawn to this idea of God's transcendence, his otherliness. And we spend time trying to understand what God is like. And we find other statements in the scriptures that help us understand what God is like. Some of those are God is creator, God is righteous, God is near, God is spirit. Many of these affirmations of God's revelation are found all over the scriptures. But I bring this up because there is one significant correction that I think Lewis gives to us. And it has to do with God as spirit. And we get that statement from John chapter 4, verse 24, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. And he said, God is spirit and wants, those, wants worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. That statement, God is spirit, Lewis takes up as an essential truth that we must understand in our thinking about God. God as spirit means that he has no body, he has no passions. It agrees with our normal description and understanding of God as immutable, unlimited, and incomprehensible. These are all theological terms that try to get at the understanding of who God is. I remember in seminary taking theology class, and I like theology books, and I collect theology books. Uh, but the section about God always seems hard to get a hold of. And Lewis is trying to get at that. Now, all of these attributes are truly applied to God, for we find justification for them in the Scripture. But Lewis wants to remind us that they can be misleading. They are fundamentally negative attributes, denying that God has human limitations because we know God transcends time and transcends space for he stands over time and over space and yet he is fully present in time and space with us but not contained by time and space. I mean these are all very lofty thoughts and sometimes hard to get a hold of. To say that he is infinite is to say that he does not, does not have finitude or limitations. Or to say that he is immutable, that means he does not change. Or to say that he has impassibility, that is, his life is not moved by passions. Affirms that God does not change or that he is not subject to outside influences. He is without passions because passions implies passivity. 
It implies idleness, that something works on you. These are all big thoughts of God. The danger is, Lewis says, is that we take these negative attributes as the whole story and we strip away the creativity of God and the characteristics of God, which leaves us with no positive statements about him at all. Immutability, impassibility, simplicity are all true statements of God, but they are speaking about a God different from us. We must remember that. Our thoughts of God must not stay on these negative indications. The truth of the matter is that these negative descriptions are, in fact, attempts to describe a positive reality that transcends and excludes our creaturely limitations. So don't forget that we are looking in all of these difficult explanations to understand a profound reality of God's existence. Sometimes I think that we think of these creaturely definitions of God and it makes God seem like on our level, so to speak, but we must be careful. The problem is that we have, we as creatures have no language with which to supply a description of this blindingly real and elevated existence of God. Lewis says that once we meet God one day, we're going to say, Aha! I got a feeling, as A.W. Tozer said, there won't be anyone that meets God on the final day and looks him in the eye. Because God is going to come on to the scene. We're going to meet a God who is so far beyond our expectation, so far above our best wondering, that it will shock us to our knees. And Lewis seeks to remind us of this. Our ideas of God may become so diminished that we end up thinking of him as some kind of endless silent sea or a sky beyond all skies or a dome of white radiance. How many times do we think and hear of those kinds of descriptions? Oh, yes. I get into nature so peaceful and so quiet. It's just there. And there's something good about those things. But if we think about who God is, if we understand what the Scripture describes Him as being, we, we must be careful not to fall into the mistake that He is so much like us. He is so much different from us. He is power and energy and and movement that you can't even say that he changes because it is a part of him. You can't capture him into a space. I mean, just think of what we know of the universe around us. All of this brought into being by his spoken word. When we say that God does not change, we are tempted to think that he is motionless, and static, 
and fixed. But the rest and peace that emanates from God is like the stillness of a mountain lake or a cool mountain breeze is uh, like a cool mountain breeze is in reality not inaction but movement but action you might if you wish call it movement at infinite speed it is something different something then far beyond what we can Uh, conceive or imagine Lewis invites us to recognize the the life and the vitality and the power and the immensity and the transcendence of God it's hard for us to get a hold of God is so vibrant so pulsating with vitality that we cannot attribute anything to him so dull and lifeless as change, progression, or improvement. So Lewis is great at spinning a phrase because he is able to kind of pick us up and turn us around. That's what authors do, right? They write words, and they put them on a page, and make a sentence and they turn them around. They flip them around and rethink about them. They add some more words and they flip them around and think about them some more. And then they go get a cup of coffee and they come back and they sit down and write a few more words, flip them around, think about them. Then they crumple it up and throw it away and start over. That's why I could never be a writer. I'm terrible at that. But Lewis is wonderful in his writing in that he grabs you and pulls you in and churns a phrase that helps us to see something that we wouldn't normally see. So, one of the corrections of Lewis is when we think of spirit, God is spirit. When we think of all the attributes, immutable, impassable, all of those things, Don't think of him creaturely. Think of him as supra, far beyond what we can imagine. And even when we are praying and when we are bowing down before him and drawing near to him, realize how great he is, far beyond us. When we say that God is a spirit, this also means that he has no body. But often we confuse being a spirit with a ghost. Ghosts are half people, shadowy echoes of real people. They are forms of people only in a shadowy way. But God is no ghost. He is a spirit, according to Lewis. Spirit is more solid than body. Spirit is more real than body. Think of it this way. When he depicts, and this is going to a book he wrote, The Great Divorce, he depicts saints and angels, trees and grass in The Great Divorce. It's an allegory of people coming from hell to visit heaven. And in that allegory, they look like ghosts. In this fictitious story, the travelers from hell come into heaven heaven and everything is so real 
It hurts them. The grass hurts them. Where they sit hurts them. Everything they touch hurts them because it is more real than anything they've ever experienced. And in this way, Lewis is pushing us to think about the reality of heaven, the reality of God, the reality of Christ's kingdom. And that too many times our mistake and our temptation is to think it's just another part of our existence, maybe in a different dimension. But heaven is immaculate. God is far beyond us. All the things of God's kingdom and His glory will blind us one day with their power and their majesty. I love this phrase. If we must have a mental picture to represent the Spirit, even God is Spirit, then we must think of something heavier, not less. Something more real, not fictitious. God is invisible, he says, not because he is a ghost, but in comparison to him, we are. Here in the shadowlands on earth, this side of heaven in which we live, we cannot see the things that are truly real except by faith. This is the important truth about God as spirit that we learn from Lewis. May it shape our priorities and cause us to want to know him. That's only one. I might be tempted to stop here. Uh, the second one I was going to uh, shortly offer up to you is Lewis's favorite description is God as author. And as author, and Lewis being an author himself, he knows very well what it is to write a novel, to write a story, to create characters. And he says when we look at life, one of the best things we can do is see that God has created life. And yes, God is beyond us. He is transcendent. And the brightness of his being and his glory, we can't get a hold of. But we're not left alone. God did create life. He does reveal himself in this life. Not the totality. He is not captured by this creation. But he reveals himself. And we should see everything that happens in life as a play or a story or a picture that God has brought into existence. The almighty maker of heaven and earth is brimming with existence and therefore he can bring life into existence and give life to it. I think that's what Jesus meant in John chapter 5, verse 26 when he said, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Because God can cause things to live, he can give life away. And all of that we experience in this world, he thought up out of his head. And he thought you up out of his head. He thought me. And when an author or someone writing a play or painting a picture thinks about the individual characters, 
Lewis says the author has never lost sight of the character, and he can work on the character. He's not bogged down by the story unfolding. As an author, really outside of time, he can be intimately acquainted with every single one of the characters in his story. And in a similar way, God's knowledge of his people is intimate, it's profound, it's never diminished, it's never faint. These are thoughts that communicate to us the wonder, the, the grace and the gift of life and relationship with God. Encountering God as He is is never simple. We are never in control. He is the great one who offers us life. We must come to him on his terms. Like the story of Jill Pohl in the Narnia story, The Silver Chair. Jill, who was the egotist, had just gotten her friend Eustace in trouble. Then Jill comes to a clearing and behold, she sees a lion, Aslan. Lewis uses in his children's books to depict a Christ figure. The lion churns and moves slowly back into the forest. Jill then hears running water and finds herself very thirsty. She plucks up her courage and moves carefully from tree to tree in its direction. She comes upon an opening from which she can see the water ahead, which increases her thirst all the more. Ready to rush forward, she suddenly checks herself because there, between her and the stream, is the lion. Lying quietly, with its head raised and its paws up front, he is looking straight at her. And they gaze at each other for a long time. And Jill's thirst is now so persistent, she must have water, even if the lion catches her. In a heavy golden voice, the lion says, Are you thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, Jill says. Then drink, says the lion. Jill suggests that the lion go away while she drinks, to which the lion gives a low growl in response. Then she says, I dare not come and drink. The lion says, then you will die of thirst. Taking a step nearer, Jill says, I suppose I must go and look for another stream, some other place. There is no other stream. Now frantic with thirst, Jill proceeds to the stream and drinks the coldest, most refreshing water ever tasted. Lewis's picture in his books help us Realize the deeper realities of our walk with God. Life and richness and flourishing only comes in God's presence. As scary and different that he may be. But there are no other streams. He is more than we can conceive. And the blessings of life 
through him are more than we ever expected. I hope that as we look at the Christian life with Lewis, we will be encouraged to walk with our Savior in greater reverence and greater awe. He is more real. He is more solid than we know. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who communicates with us. You are a God of revelation. You are a God of, of life. And that you give life and you invite us into the life that you offer. Lord, that you are real. And Lord, we, we confess our inability to see you to know you. We confess our sinful responses many times in light of who you are and who you've re revealed yourself to be. But I pray, Lord, that we as your people, given the light of the gospel and the truth of your work and your presence in our lives, that we will be faithful, hungry, thirsty to know you, to find life and living water in you. Lord, fill our church with the glory and grace of your presence. Fill our lives with the glory and grace of who you are. In Jesus' name.